Jesus. Okay, looks like it's not going to work. We have something to show you. I guess you better not get used to watching little movies every week. Never mind. Uh, Should we have the lights back on again? And we'll skip that little movie thing. How about we pray? Father, we thank you that we can gather together today as your people. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, as we consider um, what the Da Vinci Code says in in light of your word, we pray that you give us wisdom uh, as we do that. And we pray that you help us to work out uh, how uh, we can give an answer uh, to those who ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just in case you're wondering who these uh, these lovely people are here who are taking photos and taking video and all that, uh, just let you know there's the uh, jazz night for the fundraising dinner for the cathedral, and they're putting together a uh, a video about all the different activities of the cathedral and then putting a brochure and taking photos and all that to put it in. So uh, they're going to all the different services and all the different activities and taking photos and doing bro- and taking footage and what have you. So that's that's what they're doing. Now, today's a little bit different from usual, isn't it? Uh, Because usually, when we come to this part of the service, um, I'm expounding a passage of Scripture. Uh, We move through the Bible, step by step, uh, passage by passage, to see what what God is speaking to us through it. But today we're doing something a little bit different, as you've probably already worked out. Uh, We're going to be considering together um, this Da Vinci Code. Uh, the book and the movie. Can I just ask, how many people have either read the book or seen the movie? Yep. Good, good, okay, most of us. Um, if you haven't, your friends have, right? <laughs> and they'll be asking you questions about it. I've got a copy of the book here, let me just grab it. Now, it's a, it's a good book, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I enjoyed it. Kept me up all night, just about. Uh, keep reading from, from page to page. It makes you want to keep on reading it. Uh, the movie, a lot of people say, was quite boring. Uh, I thought it was okay. But then that's because, you know, I went in work time, and, you know, everything's okay in work time. It's good to become a pastor. Let me just, let me just uh, tell you, you know, you can go and watch movies in work time. It's great. The book says that it's a novel. Uh, the problem is Dan Brown says, also says uh, that it was based in history. Now, a historical novel takes well-known facts of history and, and weaves a story around it. What Dan Brown has done in this book is he's weaved a story, exciting story, around things that look like history. But are they? If what he says is true about those things, then there are grave implications for the Christian faith. But if what he says isn't true, then there is a danger that people will use it as an excuse to avoid or deny the Lord Jesus. Although I suspect most people will just go in and bounce off and 
That'll be it. Truth, though, is important. And we need to be clear about what Dan Brown is saying and what is the basis for him saying it. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the book, no, haven't seen the movie or read the book, uh, let me tell you where, to me, I think he seems to be saying that some of the things are history. Now, so, of course, there are lots of things in the book that are, you know, everyone knows they're a fiction, but there are some things that seem to be claiming to be history. Jesus Christ was a man. Only a man, not divine. It was Constantine, the 4th century Roman emperor, who made him divine for political reasons. And to do that, he embellished the New Testament Gospels and suppressed earlier, more reliable ones. In fact, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, who was pregnant at the time of the crucifixion. Mary fled to France, or Gaul as it was then known, when Jesus was crucified. And there she had a baby girl called Sarah. Jesus had intended her to replace him as leader of the church, but the church refused to accept her and instead sought to suppress the truth about her and continued to do so for the past 2,000 years. However, there is an organization that exists to guard this secret. It's called the Priory of Sion, founded in 1099. Members of the Priory include Sir Isaac Newton and Leonardo da Vinci. That's the uh, medieval Renaissance painter Leonardo da Vinci, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Leonardo da Vinci. Now, Da Vinci gives us clues to this secret in his painting of The Last Supper. Uh, in the picture that we uh, traditionally think of as John was actually a woman. And although traditionally the cup from which Jesus and his disciples drank was, was called the Holy Grail, in his picture there's not one cup but many because the Holy Grail is Mary Magdalene herself. Because as one of, as one of his characters says, she was the vessel that held the blood of Jesus. And so there's been a fight between a, a shadowy group on the, of the Roman, in, within the Roman Catholic Church on the one hand and the Priory of Sion on the other. Both know the secret. The church is trying to cover it up. And people in the church are willing to lie or even kill to do so. That's roughly the, the kind of thing I think we're talking about. Now before we go on, we must acknowledge that the church has been involved in cover-ups before. The shameful way with which many churches have dealt with child sexual abuse by clergy is a case in point. Uh, many different denominations have had. It's been terrible. And so it's not surprising that people find it easy to believe that the church covers up things. Now, in medieval times, uh, the Roman church would not allow people to read the Bible. And so people were dependent on a, a corrupt institution for, for spiritual direction. And the church kept them under control because you could only reach God through them, through the, through, through the church hierarchy, the priests, the sacraments. Until in the 16th century, a, a German monk called Martin Luther discovered the Bible actually said something quite different, that, that we're saved by faith in, in Jesus Christ, not by what we can do or what the church can do for us. Which started the whole revolution called the Reformation. When Bibles were printed, and many of them illegally. And people discovered that a true relationship with God is through faith alone in Jesus, which the institutional church had been hiding from them for years. Of course, the Roman church is now encourages people to read the Bible. It's, it's, it's not saying that anymore. Uh, but is this something like that? 
big cover-up by the church. What's the evidence for what Dan Brown is saying? Well, there's lots of things with which we could take issue. In the novel, in the, in the movie, the internet's got a huge amount of resources on it, but I know you want to have lunch. Uh, so I'll confine myself to dealing with four questions, the ones on the outline. Number one, does the Priory of Sion have a great secret? Two, was Mary Magdalene Mrs. Jesus? Three, was Jesus merely human? And four, how can we reach God? Question number one. The Priory of Sion, does it have a great secret? Dan Brown rests a lot of his case on the existence of this Priory of Sion. This, this group that has guarded and handed down the secret for, for many years. In the introduction to his book, he says, Fact, the Priory of Sion is a European secret society founded in 1099 as a real organization. In 1975, Paris's, I don't know how to pronounce this, it's National Library in French, right? Discovered parchments known as the secret dossiers in French. Identifying numerous members of the Priory of Sion, including Sir Isaac Newton, Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. Fact. Well, friends, if you went to France and you went to the National Library there, you would find a document that gives the names of the Grand Masters of the Priory of Sion dating all the way back to the 12th century. And sure enough, in this document, you will find the names of some of those masters. So Isaac Newton, Leonardo da Vinci, and the others. There's no doubt that it's there. That's the document that uh, Dan Brown relies on for the Da Vinci Code, as well as uh, Michael Bergent, uh, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln did for their book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. How did the document get there? It was put there in the 1960s by a Frenchman called Pierre Plantard. Uh, CBS 60 Minutes did a, uh, did a uh, story on this. You can actually download the whole story on the, on, on the internet, on the CBS website. In an interview with, for the American News Service, CBS, the head of the French police, uh, police archives calls Plantard a dreamer, someone he describes as a, a fantasist, not a serious person. Uh, one of his dreams was to set up a right-wing anti-Semitic organizations, uh, organized on, on similar styles to, to medieval orders of, of chivalry. But actually those organizations only existed on paper. One was called French National Renewal. Plantard claimed he had 3,000 members. The police found it only had four. In 1953, he was served six months in jail for fraud. But in 1956, he founded a new organization and deposited the statutes with the French authorities. And this was called the Priory of Sion. It didn't exist before that. Ten years later, Plantard gave the Priory a fictitious pedigree by drawing up lists of uh, these grand masters and planting it in libraries around France, including the French National Library. And then he suggested to the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail that they might find new information about the history of Christianity there. They bought the whole thing, lock, stock and barrel, and wrote it up from their book. And it's where the book, where Dan, from which Dan Brown gets the information for, for his novel. In 1993, however, Plantard admitted under oath to a French judge that he'd fabricated all the documents relating to the Priory of Sion. 
The judge issued him a severe warning, dismissed him as a harmless crank, and he died in the year 2000. So much for the Priory of Siam. Question number two. Was Mary Magdalene Mrs. Jesus? Now, when you hear a statement like, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, then you have to ask the question, well, what's the evidence for it? Dan Brown, through his character Lee Teabing, points, first of all, to Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper. Question, did Leonardo da Vinci intend to paint Mary Magdalene in his Last Supper? Firstly, there's no record of her being at the Last Supper. As far as we know, it was Jesus and his twelve disciples. There are thirteen people in the painting. And if he intended to put Mary in, surely there would have been fourteen people. Now, I'll just show you the one. That's the one uh, that's meant to be Mary. Uh, and traditionally, it's been considered to be John. Now, if you look at it, you can see that it does look effeminate, doesn't it? It does look a bit effeminate. Well, quite effeminate. But art historians tell us that, that, that John was often painted like that in those days. It was a trend for painting young men of the day. Uh, have a look at the next picture. Men or lady. Right, that's Leonardo da Vinci's painting of John the Baptist. You can see what I'm talking about. So that, that, was, that was normal for that day. And finally, Leonardo himself actually identifies that, that figure in the painting as John. See, he did preliminary sketches for the Last Supper, and in those preliminary sketches, he actually labeled the figures. And the figure that Da Vinci Code identifies as Mary Magdalene, Leonardo Da Vinci himself identifies as John. Seems pretty obvious to me what it was. But even if he did paint her, what would he know 1,500 years after the events? Especially if there wasn't really a priori of Zion to pass on the secrets. So, if you can't get this Mary Magdalene thing from Leonardo da Vinci's paintings, where do you get it from? Well, the only way you could actually know is to go back to the eyewitness documents of the time. And the most reliable historical documents of the time that deal with this matter are in fact the documents that now make up our New Testament. Uh, never mind that we as Christians believe it's the word of God, uh, it's a different matter, they're, they're also historical documents written by eyewitnesses or by people associated with eyewitnesses. People who lived at the time of the events being talked about, who knew the people that were being talked about, and there were people who were really there. So what do we learn about Mary Magdalene from them? Well, first of all, there's no evidence from the New Testament that she was a prostitute. Dan, Dan Brown's right about that. No evidence she's a prostitute. The idea that she was a prostitute actually came from a sermon by Pope Gregory the Great about 500 years later, which unfortunately identified her with a woman in Luke 7 who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and, and wipes them with her hair and, and pours perfume on them. Now, it wasn't meant to, to put her down. Uh, the thrust of his term, and I, I'm told, is to show how much Christ had forgiven her and how Christ could forgive others as well. But it wasn't really Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene comes up in Luke 8. So what do we know about Mary Magdalene? Well, first of all, we know that she was one of a group of women who supported Jesus out of their own means. We see that at the beginning of Luke 8. Uh, these are women who had been uh, cured of evil spirits or diseases by Jesus, and Mary Magdalene was one of them. She 
She was someone from whom seven demons had been cast. We don't know any more information about her past than that. The second thing we know about Mary Magdalene is that she was there at the crucifixion. Mark 15.40 tells us that she was one of a, a group of women who had actually come with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem and was standing in a distance watching him die on the cross. The other thing we know about Mary is that she was a witness of the resurrection. She was one of the women who went to the tomb of Jesus on that first Easter Sunday and found it empty. Jesus appeared to her and spoke to her and sent her to tell his disciples the good news that he had risen. So all these things neither slanders Mary, puts her down, nor does it exalt her as, as Jesus' wife. She, she was a follower of Jesus who loved him. Is there any evidence that they were married? Certainly no. Now, in the Da Vinci Code, Teabing claims the assertion they were married can be found in some other Gospels. Gospels, he claims, were suppressed by the Church. In particular, he finds his evidence in something called the Gospel of Philip. Okay, let me tell you a bit about the Gospel of Philip. You can download it from the internet, just type Gospel of Philip in, you know, in uh, Google and you'll get it. Gospel of Philip is not a gospel like our New Testament gospels, in that a New Testament gospel is like, like biographies of Jesus. Right? Gospel of Philip is not like that. It's just like philosophical thoughts and musings, really. It certainly wasn't written by the Apostle Philip. Uh, it's dated the 3rd century AD. It's one of the Gnostic Gospels. G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnosticism was a cult uh, that mixes some form of, of pagan philosophy with Christianity to give some kind of hybrid religion, as it were. And they're into this secret knowledge. And salvation was, was going up the spiritual ladder by possessing these secrets. And to support what they said, they had all kinds of writings written in such a way as to suggest they were written by the characters of Jesus' day. But they weren't. They were mostly 2nd and 3rd centuries. Now, to rely on something written 200 years after an event to tell you secret information not known to eyewitnesses at the time, that's very questionable, isn't it? It's like me asking you to write an essay about the, the founding of Singapore by Raffles. And suppose you come up with a completely different version of, of the events than the eyewitnesses of the time had recorded. Which one do you think you think I should believe? I imagine there was a, a murder in Smack today. All of you would be eyewitnesses of Tim walking in that door and taking out a pistol and shooting me. Bang! Right? You could stand up in court and say, I saw Tim shoot Andrew. The official record of what happened. And imagine that for some reason it became a famous case. Maybe it's the, the case of the mad Englishman. Right? Heat struck in the tropical, tropical sun. It appears in the annals of history. And then in 200 years' time, in the year 2205, a secret society decides that all the eyewitnesses were wrong. They produce their own version of the events. They suit their own theories. And Andrew was shot by the CIA because he had secret knowledge about them keeping those aliens in Area 51. <laughs> and he's been telling people about it secretly and then now he's about to go public. And so it's actually the CIA who is behind all evil in this world and they sent an Irish hitman called Patrick Joseph in to get him. Again, who do you think should be believed? The eyewitnesses who were there at the time? 
who, who gave their lives to say that they're telling the truth. People give their lives for false things all the time, but not if they think it's true. No, they do give it their... You know what I mean, don't you? Right? They don't give their lives for things that they know isn't true. Yep. Think? Would you believe the eyewitnesses? Or the people who wrote about it 200 years later? With no evidence that what they wrote is anything more than a product of their own imaginations. You can't believe the eyewitnesses. Now in the Da Vinci Code, Teabing says there's about 80 or so Gospels floating around. Right? Now that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it doesn't matter how many documents in the ancient time that people might want to call a, a Gospel. They could have a thousand, it doesn't matter. If they weren't written by eyewitnesses or, or people associated with them, they wouldn't be worth the, the papyrus they're written on. Except maybe to archaeologists or students of their particular sect. See, I could write a gospel. I call it the gospel according to St. Andrew the Cheer. Right? I, could, I could spin all kinds of tales. Now, does that affect in any way the credibility of the real gospels? Not in the slightest. The fact that I make a fake gospel shouldn't cast doubt on the reality of the, of the real gospel, the authenticity of the real gospels. All it shows is that I can't prove my arguments, my ideas by arguments and have to resort to creative fiction to get them across. Because you know that there is no way that I, living long time after Jesus, have, have any hope of knowing something about him that the eyewitnesses at the time didn't know. And so friends, it matters not a hoot to Christianity that the Gnostics had all kinds of gospels. These Gospels tell us virtually nothing about the historical Jesus. What they tell us about is about 2nd and 3rd century Gnosticism and their philosophy of him. It's an interesting study if you're into that kind of thing. But it's got no value spiritually. No value to tell you about the real Jesus. And yet, while we don't think the Gospel of Philip actually tells us anything about the, the real Jesus, it's interesting that it doesn't really tell us about what Dan Brown thinks it tells us about. It doesn't actually unambiguously say they were married. It does have a little bit here about you know, uh, Jesus uh, uh, kissing her on the something. We don't, we don't know what it is. That bit's lost. Right? Some people put mouth there, but you could also have cheek or head or somewhere else. And, and the other disciples were offended. Now, why this writing would suggest they'd be offended if he was kissing his own wife on the mouth, I don't know. Um, seems more probable, I think, that the writer of this Gospel didn't think they were married. And he was kissing her on the cheek, and the disciples were jealous that they didn't kiss. He didn't kiss them on the cheek as much, you know, because kissing on the cheek was okay for men in those days. But whatever it says, it doesn't matter. Right? It's an academic exercise. Even if it, even if the Gospel of Philip said clearly, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married on Easter Sunday. Martha was the bridesman. Peter, Peter was the best man. Bridesmaid. Peter was the best man. You know, we still wouldn't think they were married because we can't trust it as a historical document anyway. Was there any evidence that uh, Mary is Mrs. Jesus? No. Third question. Was Jesus merely human? Now this is the, this is the bigger concern, isn't it? About, the, about this uh, uh, Da Vinci Code. The claim that Jesus is not divine. Dan Brown, through his character Lee Teabing, claims that it was the Roman Emperor Constantine which made Jesus divine in 325 AD to unite a divided Rome under one religion. Uh, 
it seems that, you know, there was lots of violence, Christians fighting pagans, and so he's trying to calm everything down and, and bring it all together under, uh, under one religion. Actually, it wasn't a lot of violence. Christians were being persecuted, and that, that was about it. But here's a quote from the book itself. Uh, sorry, I think I got that wrong. Let me just read it for you if it doesn't come up. Can you try the next slide and see? Ah, yes, here we go. My dear, tea being declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Not the Son of God? Right, tea being said. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Hold on. You're saying that Jesus' divinity is a result of a vote? A relatively close one at that, he being added. Now, let's just compare that for a moment uh, with what the Bible says. Okay, and then we're going to see what's the evidence for it. Was Jesus human? Well, the Bible says yes. Jesus was truly human. There's no denying that. All the human, all the things you, you read in the Bible says, Jesus is human, Jesus is human, Jesus is human. But the Bible doesn't teach he was merely human. It also teaches that he is divine. He's referred to as God a number of times in the New Testament. For example, in John chapter 1 verse 1, we're told, referring to Jesus, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Furthermore, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it often applies things to Jesus which are rightly applied to God alone. Think about Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23. God has been saying in that context he will jealously guard his uniqueness. And he says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, there is none other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. He is God, no others. But what do we see in the New Testament? Paul echoes Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2, which we sang about just now. But notice before whom every knee bows and every tongue swears. Philippians 2, verse 10 to, 10 to 11. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not God, then, then this is blasphemy. God has jealously guarded this unique place for himself. And yet the New Testament happily applies it to Jesus. I'll give you another example. Remember the ancient Jews you know, considered God's covenantal name, uh, YHWH, like too holy to pronounce. And so whenever they saw YHWH in the text, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. Right? So most of our English Bibles follow that tradition. And when you see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, that's actually Yahweh, Lord. In Joel 2.32 in the Old Testament, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Romans 10, 9-13, Paul says that if we confess that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. And to quote it, to prove it rather, he quotes Joel 2.32, which says everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, the Lord, will be saved. See? Joel 2, Yahweh, I am, the God of Israel. Paul applies it directly to Jesus, the Lord. Don't shy to do that. 
There's lots of places where the Old Testament takes a verse about God, uh, the New Testament takes a verse and the Old Testament is about God, applies it directly to Jesus. Because he is, he is God. It's not just Paul. Jesus himself says that. If you look at John chapter 8, 58, Jesus tells the Jews, before Abraham was born, I am. God had revealed himself to Moses as I am. It's the origin of the name Yahweh. You want to get the next slide? Um, Jesus applied it to himself. Before Abraham was, I am. No wonder at this point the Jews picked up the stones to stone him because he was a man claiming to be God. And he even went further than that. He says we must believe it in order to be saved. In, in John 8.24, Jesus says to the Jews, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's a little bit obscured by English translations because it's not grammatically correct to say I am, so in the middle of a sentence, so they add I am he or I am the one I claim to be. But in the Greek, that, those, those bits are not there. That's a square bracket. I, it's actually there, I am. Saying, you must believe I am. You must believe I am God. They said, if you refuse to believe it, you won't be saved. And his disciples believed him after the resurrection. Uh, in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas rightly calls him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't, you know, turn away horrified at the thought of being called Lord and God. Instead he says, blessed are you, you have seen me and, and, and you believe, but Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. There are lots more things you can show in the Bible to show. That's enough to prove my point. The New Testament, written by the apostles, firmly, strongly affirms the deity of Christ. So what does it mean? That means that the idea of Jesus being God wasn't original at Constantine. It was there from the very beginning. The words of Jesus, the words of the Apostle Paul, the Gospels themselves. But what if the Bible itself was a creation of Constantine? Now, Teabing says that in the first four centuries after Jesus' death, that Jesus was considered a, a mere mortal, a great and powerful man, but a mortal nonetheless. And then Constantine upgraded his status to God by commissioning and financing a new Bible which omitted the Gospels, which talked about Jesus' human traits and embellishing the ones that made him more godlike. Now, those claims are very easily dealt with. But before we do that, let me just give you a brief outline uh, of how we got the books of the Bible that we have. Constantine had actually nothing to do with it. Right? It's more like this. Christians had a, a category for the authoritative word of God, authoritative word of God from the beginning. Right? And that was the Old Testament, the Scriptures. Jesus recognized them as God's written word, and he taught his disciples to do the same. And he promised his disciples, the apostles, that the Spirit would lead them into all truth. And so, that's what they believe, and that's what happened. A New Testament time, within the New Testament times itself, there were some writings which were considered scripture, or on par with the Old Testament, the authoritative word of God. For example, if you read 2 Peter, uh, Peter says that Paul's letters are twisted by some as they do the other scriptures. Well, he considers Paul's letters as scripture. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes both Deuteronomy and, in the Old Testament and Luke as scripture. The scripture says, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. 
So the recognition of some of these apostolic writings as scripture was already there in the time of the apostles. As time went on, the early church recognized the voice of God speaking to them in these various books. Books were written by the apostles or had the apostolic imprimatur on them, as it were, uh, through a close connection with the apostles. So, so theologically speaking, you can't say the church created the Bible. It's that God's word imposed itself on the church. And a growing number of these books began to be recognized as inspired scripture. By the end of the first century, all the 27 books in our New Testament had been recognized and received by the churches. Some churches had lists that were incomplete, either because there was some debate about some of the books, or they were not known to the churches at that particular area. However, within one generation of the apostolic age, all 27 books had been regarded as authoritative by some church fathers. See, God's people accepted the Gospels and Epistles without a formal declaration about them, because that's how God works. It's his word. And his word imposes itself on, on his people. In fact, the first formal list we have about 27 New Testament books don't actually come out until an Easter letter dated AD 367 by a man named Athanasius. And this was later ratified and affirmed by the Council of Hippo in 393 AD and the Synod of Carthage in 397. Nothing to do with Constantine. That seems pretty late until you remember that these, were, these, these things weren't about choosing books to put in the New Testament. They were just a formal way of saying these are the books that the churches have already found collectively to be God's word to us just like the Old Testament is. They have apostolic authority. The churches testify that God speaks to them as much as he does the Old Testament. And they've stood the test of time. As far as the uh, Council of Nicaea goes, the whole issue wasn't even on the agenda. Well, that's, 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 that's the bit about how the, 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 the books of the Bible were, were, were put in together. Let's have a look a bit more closely at Tebing's version of the events. As far as the allegations that Constantine embellished the New Testament Gospels, well, there's no way that could be right. Why? Because we have actual manuscripts. Handwritten copies of the New Testament Gospels that, that predate Constantine by over a hundred years. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, they're the same as the ones after Constantine. There's no suggestion that Constantine embellished the Gospels. We have copies before his time. What about his ideas that the other Gospels are more reliable and tell about a human Jesus? Well, we've already talked about how unreliable those later Gospels are. Part of the reason the church rejected them was because they have a strict criteria for reliability. Right? Writings with no connection with an apostle wouldn't be considered. Writings late in the second and third century, long way away from the events, no way. But even then, it's interesting, those other gospels actually tended to make Jesus less human rather than more human. Anyway, because remember the Gnostics. They, they believe that the physical was bad, the spiritual was good. And so, it's actually, it's actually got it the wrong way around. The humanity of Christ is clearly seen in, in the real Gospels. We've already seen that it's a clear teaching of Scripture, and the clear teaching of Scripture affirms Jesus' deity. That couldn't have been embellished by Constantine or anyone else. And, and friends, the church also believed it, even before Constantine. 
And we have statements from various writers of the church that affect. Let me read a few for you. Ignatius called Jesus in AD 105, God himself manifested in human form. Clement, AD 150, it is fitting that you should think of Jesus Christ as God. Justin Martha, AD 160, the first begotten word of God is even God. Irenaeus, AD 185, Jesus is our Lord and God, our Savior and King. Tertullian, AD 200, Christ our God. Clement of Alexandria, AD 200, Jesus was the truly most manifest deity. Origen, AD 225, no one should be offended, the Savior is also God. No- Novation, AD 235, he is not only man but God also. Cyprian, AD 250, Jesus Christ our Lord and God. Methodius, AD 290, he was truly with us, he truly was, and us, with God and being God. Lactantius, AD 305, we believe him to be God. You want me to go on? Every one of these writers were before Constantine. And long before the Council of Nicaea. The idea that, that Jesus was considered to be only human one day and then promoted by Constantine and the Council of Nicaea to be divine the next is it's just pathetically ludicrous. I'll tell you what. In spite of the clear teaching of Scripture and the witness of the other church, there, there did arise a movement in the church that denied the full deity of Christ. Led by a monk called Arius, it became quite popular. In fact, even today there are groups that that uh, believe some of the wrong things that he taught and, uh, and call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? Uh, now, there was a great debate at the Council of Nicaea about that issue, not because Constantine was creating a new doctrine, but because the full deity of Christ was under threat. See, if the Jehovah's Witness became so popular in Malaysia that the uh, Christian Federation of Malaysia were to, to publicly condemn them for their false views on Jesus, would it mean they were creating a new doctrine? It's a little bit like, like what the Council of Nicaea did. Yes, the Council did vote to condemn the views of Arius. And it did affirm the true doctrine that, that Jesus is indeed truly God. But it didn't create the doctrine. It was already there. And by the way, the vote was not by the narrowest of margins, as Teabing claims. It was 298 to 2. Friends, Jesus was human, but he was not merely human. He was both God and man. And he must be that way for our salvation. And so the final issue we're going to talk about is one that was only seen in passing in the movies. I don't know if it's because of the censors. I think probably not. I think it was just, just like that, the movie. There's a few pages about it in the book. The question of how we reach The medieval church thought it was through the sacraments which they controlled. Brown suggested, through Robert Langdon, that communion with God happens through sex. Now it's the moment of orgasm, he says, a climactic instinct, instant in which the mind goes totally blank and you can see God. And he claims that, that ritualistic sex was practiced in a Jewish temple in the Holy of Holies as part of Jewish tradition. Friends, that kind of thing was was condemned by God, wasn't it, in the Old Testament? Not because sex itself is bad, but because immorality is. Temple sex involves temple prostitution, that, that's immoral. Because sex is for husband and wife, for enjoyment and procreation. It's a gift from God, but it's not going to get you closer to him. My friends, the Bible tells us there is a way of relating to God, 
And it's not through sex. And it's not through something that can be controlled by the, the church as an institution either. We said that Jesus is both God and man. And he's the mediator between God and man. He's the way we reach God. Because, you see, our problem, what cuts us off from reaching God, is the problem of sin. Sin essentially means rebellion against God. It's refusing to let him be the, be the ruler of our life. And because of sin, we face God's wrath, his, his eternal punishment. But Jesus came, God and man, to die for our sin. And on the cross, he died in our place. He bore our guilt, he bore our punishment, so that we can be forgiven and restored. He rose again, seen by many eyewitnesses, and their testimony is true. He now is the King of kings and Lord of lords, exalted. So how can we reach God? Well, we can't. But God has reached down to us in Jesus. We take hold of it by It's not about doing, it's about trusting. It's about trusting that Jesus really is who he says he is, God and man. It's about trusting that he really did do what he claimed he would do, die for our sins and rise again. It's about trusting him personally to be your Savior and Lord and mine. The Da Vinci Code is entertainment. Sex is fun but only through Jesus, the true Jesus, God and man, can we be reconciled to right relationship with God. Relationship that starts now and lasts forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in your word you have given us a 